It's time now to turn our attention to God's Word, and we are in Daniel chapter 11 this morning as we have been working our way through this book, Daniel chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, you can use one of ours, which you will find from under under one of the chairs in front of you, Daniel chapter 11. What you may or may not know is that Daniel is one of those biblical books that secular scholars love to rip apart. They love to tear it apart uh, and make it something other than what the book claims for itself to be. Though the author claims to be Daniel, it claims to be about his life, it it claims to be about his life during a certain period of time, Uh, secular scholars will say it's all fabrication. It was, in fact, simply a tract for the times written by some anonymous person for the encouragement of Israel sometime during the reign of Antiochus IV in 165 or 164 B.C., a full 400 years after the book itself claims to have been written and take place. In other words, the Daniel that we see in this book, it is often claimed, is a fictional character. And in large measure, scholars make this claim because of the portions of the book that we are about to look at this morning. Parts that predict with clear specificity future events far beyond Daniel and his time. Never mind for the fact the miracles that occur in the book, though those are disregarded too. In their mind, surely there is no such thing as a God who speaks to people. There's no such thing as a God who exists above history, who speaks into history, and can tell about future events. Therefore, because in their minds that cannot exist, the book of Daniel must be something other than what it claims to be, and they must reinterpret it accordingly. Nevertheless, for those with open minds, moreover, for those who can see with the eyes of faith, the writer of Daniel is not simply looking back retroactively at what has taken place in the past. Instead, because God has revealed it to him, he is looking forward into the future, seeing what God himself will take place. And as God's people, instead of asking, how can predictive prophecy be real, a better question might be, why should God show this to Daniel in the first place? Why would he give him this sweeping vision of uh, the coming times with such complete specificity to a man who would not be alive to see it happening? In the previous chapter, we saw God preparing Daniel for what he would see here by showing him the spiritual conflict that rages on behind the physical world that we see. And in this chapter now, chapter 11, Daniel is again being shown what he has seen before, and that is this, that there will be a never-ending conflict between the sinful nations of the world and God's kingdom. In the end, though, what we see is that the kingdom of God and his people will survive and will never end while the kingdoms of the world lie broken and fallen by the wayside. In other words, amidst all the details and predictions which we can now clearly see on the backside of these things, we not only see the wisdom and power of God who stands exalted as the sovereign king above all things, but we also see his gracious faithfulness to his promises and to his people as he preserves them through all manner of conflict that would cease to eradicate them from existence. And because God has been faithful to his promises in the past, we can trust him today to be faithful to us as his people. Now, as we think about the passage that lies before us, you should know that after writing page after page after page of commentary on this passage, the famous Lutheran commentator H.C. Leopold said, how could someone ever preach from this chapter? Well, we're going to try it this morning. 
If you've been reading ahead in anticipation of the sermon, you know this is not going to be a difficult, an easy task, rather, because of the precise detail of historical prediction and fulfillment that takes place. It takes Calvin 40 pages to outline every single detail that was fulfilled historically from what Daniel sees here. Now, if we had maybe three hours, we could walk through that. I don't think most of you want to be here for three hours, particularly with the good smells that are wafting through from the back with our lunch today. Nevertheless, what we also want to do is not just make this a study in history. We don't just want to to see what happens historically. We want to know why it is happening historically and how we should respond to it today. What difference should it make in our life? So rather than the street-level approach, we're going to take the kind of Google Earth approach and see it from high above. I have, if you're interested, a handout that you can read through and see much more of the finer details. It's back at uh, the bookshop. But at the same time this morning, we nevertheless, in seeing that big picture, want to, to dip in and see the fulfillment that's going on. But we also want to see the encouragement that should come to us, as well as to Daniel and those that came after him, of the preservation of God's people through all of this physical and spiritual conflict. After we kind of survey the chapter, then we want to spend the remainder of our time reflecting on the specific ways that we can apply what we have seen in this text. As we ourselves stand in that long line of God's people undergoing the same sort of spiritual conflict that raged on in their day and will continue to rage until the return of Christ. So we looked at verse 1 of chapter 11 last week as it belongs with all of chapter 10. And so we begin now with verse 2 of chapter 11. (coughs) Follow along as I read God's word. Here the angel says, And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. Well, we're not going to stop every every, uh, three verses, I promise. But here is an important opening, because it sets the stage for all that is to come. Daniel is told about the four prominent kings of Persia that will come, including Xerxes I, who would invade Greece only to be defeated in 480 B.C. at the Battle of Salome. Now, no other prominent kings in the world are mentioned and come on the scene until Alexander the Great, who is mentioned in verse 3, is the mighty king who dominates in his rule and does whatever he wants. In other words, he is, for the most part, unstoppable. Yet he dies young. And instead of having an appointed successor or an heir who would take the throne after him, just as God predicts, his kingdom shall be broken and was broken and divided between the four winds of heaven and was plucked up and would go to others besides these. In other words, Alexander did not have a son of his own. He did not have a successor that he could appoint. He died very suddenly in battle, very unexpectedly and young, and therefore it was his four leading generals who picked up and divided up the kingdom. And that's it for Alexander the Great. In the very next verse, Daniel is moving on. And as he moves on, we see here something of the importance of viewing history, not from the way the rest of the world sees it, but from the way that God sees it. Because if you pick up any book on world history, um, go to the library, click on the internet, whatever it is, you will see Alexander the Great having a very large chunk of time being spent on him. 
because of the dominance with which he spread his reign, uh, the way in which he did it, all of these things, Alexander is seen as crucial in world history. And yet, and yet here, he's reduced to one verse. Why is that? Because we're seeing history from God's vantage point. And in the eye of God is always his people. God's view is not just on what is happening in the world, important as they may be, but his view is always on his people. Even in the coming verses, we see references to those in the north and the south. And we have to ask ourselves, north and south of what? The answer is Israel. Because that's where his people are meant to be. And he is clearly focused on his people. Yes, Alexander met, left his mark on the world. In fact, now, even on this side of New Testament history, we can see how God providentially used the spread of the Greek language through the spread of Alexander's reign to make it easier for Christianity and the gospel to spread through the Greek language in the Greek New Testament. God used Alexander for the spread of the glory of his son. But in the immediacy of his day, he had very little impact on the people of God. Israel was largely unaffected by him. Therefore, he is unimportant to God in this situation. As he is seeking to encourage them, Alexander moves by the wayside. And I want us to stop and dwell on that just for a moment. In contrast to his people, Alexander the Great is not so great. He is, in fact, small in the eyes of God. In fact, if they are part of the covenant people of God, then the lowliest wife and mother, the smallest, most insignificant farmer, the most undervalued slave or servant is more valuable and more important to God than the greatest of secular kings. Never forget that, loved ones. Never forget the great love and compassion and attention that God places on you, his people. We resume and we'll move more quickly, beginning at verse 5. To set it up, we need to remind ourselves that two of the four kingdoms that came from Alexander's empire were the king of the Ptolemies, based in Egypt, and the kingdom of the Seleucids, based in Syria and Babylon. Here again, the focus is on these two kingdoms because they had the most direct influence on Israel. Verse 5 begins with the southern uh, Egyptian kingdom. Then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule, and his authority shall be a great authority. After some years I shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure. But she shall be given up, and her attendants, he who fathered her, and he who supported her in those times. And from a branch from her roots one shall arise in his place." He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and shall prevail. He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold, and for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. His son shall wage war and assemble a great multitude of great, uh, multitude of great forces, which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through, and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south, moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north. And he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted. And he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. For the king of the north shall again raise a multitude greater than the first. And after some years, he shall come on with a great army and abundant supplies." In those times, many shall rise against the king of the south, and the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. Then the king of the north 
shall come and throw up siege works, siege works and take a well-fortified city. And the forces of the south shall not stand, or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. But he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him. And he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. He shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom. He shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. He shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, and it shall not stand or be to his advantage. Afterward, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them. But a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. Then he shall turn his face back toward the fortresses of his own land. But he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. Now, in some ways, again, uh, when you... When you read how all of these things are fulfilled, you see there is an exactness that really the only thing that is left missing is the names of those people that are mentioned. Let me give you an example. In the first few verses, we see the prediction of an attempt at a peace alliance between Ptolemy II and Antiochus II in the northern and southern kingdoms. Ptolemy's daughter, Berenice, was sent to marry Antiochus in order to secure this peace, but Antiochus was already married. So the plan was that he would divorce his wife, disinherit his sons, and marry this daughter. However... Hell hath no fury like a scorned woman, right? And in this case, that is true. The wife found out and poisoned both Antiochus and Berenice. That same year, her brother, that is Berenice, the pledged wife, took the throne after the death of their father and invaded the Seleucid capital in order to take vengeance for the death of his sister, verse 7. Now, frankly, that sounds like a season of Dallas or something, doesn't it? I mean, just uh, political intrigue and fighting and maneuvering between these two kingdoms. And the rest of the passage is all about that, this mixture of war and politics. And Daniel is told these things because he himself, as well as the people of God, need to understand this is what life is going to be like for the next few hundred years. Wars and rumors of wars and politics and kings positioning for power, and they are going to be caught in the crossfire. You even see where his people, in fact, that is Daniel's people, the Jews, try and, and jump in and intervene in one situation and they fail. Another king comes into the glorious land, into Israel, and does not do things that are pleasant for God's people there. The point here, though, is that in all of this, nothing is unforeseen and God has not forgotten his people. The story continues in verse 20. There shall arise in his place, that is the former king's place, one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. And from the time that an alliance was made with him, he shall act deceitfully. And he shall become strong with the small people. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province, and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoils, and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but, strongholds, but only for a time. And he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for plots shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. And as for the two kings, the heart shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail, for the end is yet to be at the time appointed. And he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant. And he shall work his will and return to his own land. At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, 
but it shall not be this time as it was before. For ships of Katim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress, and shall take away the regular burnt offerings, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help. And many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. In these verses, we see the rise of someone Daniel has already talked about before in previous chapters, Antiochus IV. He was the Seleucid king who took power when his successor was killed, not in power, but by the man he had appointed to collect taxes and tribute. In verse 21, Antiochus is called a contemptible man. Part of this is the reason. Part of the reason for this is because of the the title he took upon himself, Epiphanes, that is, God made manifest. That's hubris, isn't it? His military campaigns into Egypt to the south are described in verses 25 through 29. And we are again then reminded of his attack on Israel where he set his heart against the holy covenant between God and his people. This persecution eventually led a man called Judas Maccabeus to lead a rebellion who gave a little help to Israel so that Antiochus could be driven away. Maccabeus means hammer. Thus those who followed him, the Maccabees, were called the hammers, which incidentally is a good name for someone leading a rebellion. Daniel's again reminded that these things are happening at the appointed time. That is, they are happening under the sovereign hand of God. When, when the worst things imaginable are happening, when the abomination that causes desolation is taking place, God has not forgotten you, Israel. That's what Daniel is being told and is meant to convey to the people. Why? Because God alone is sovereign. He is the one appointing the times and the events in which those times will take place. In his book, Kingdom in Conflict, Chuck Colson, who died recently, talks about his days in the White House. He talks about sitting with President Nixon and Henry Kissinger and a bunch of uh, advisors all there in the Oval Office. And Kissinger saying, gentlemen, what we do today will determine the future history of the world. Colson comments, while I was sitting there, it sounded, you know, goose pimples kind of ran up my back. And I thought, boy, I'm really important. I'm determining the future history of the world. But then he writes, looking back on that from prison, he was implicated in the Watergate scandal and served jail time where he was converted. Looking back on that time from prison, I realized how utterly arrogant and wrong it was. It didn't matter. We were not determining the future history of the world. That was in God's hands. So it was then and so it is now. And Daniel is told this by the angel to encourage him and to encourage his people when it looks like history has derailed in all hope is lost. We can see this theme of God's sovereignty continuing as the story does in verse 36. The king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any god, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the god of fortresses instead of these, a god whom his fathers did not know. 
He shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships. And he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land, and tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab, and the main parts of the Amorites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and of silver, and of all the precious things of Egypt, and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him. And he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. Now at this point, we have to make a decision about how to interpret the preceding verses. It's interesting because up until verse 36, there is virtually no disagreement on the interpretation of these things. Almost every commentator points to the exact same people, the exact same events, and says, this is what the Bible is pointing forward to. But here the details start to unravel and become unclear. Some believe the prophecy continues to describe Antiochus IV. There doesn't seem to be a very clear, discernible change in language. The problem, though, is that while some details match, others do not. For example, Antiochus didn't die between the sea and the glorious holy mountain in verse 45, but in a small battle in another country, the country of Persia. Therefore, what many see here is in a continuing description of Antiochus, a description that also grows to describe someone else as well. Someone who is like Antiochus, only worse. Here is a king who will do as he wills. Even Antiochus was defeated in battle. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. You can almost hear in that verse the serpent from the Garden of Eden. I think this is a description, a foreshadowing of the final satanic king, the Antichrist, who manifests blasphemy toward the god of his creation. He will make war on the saints, yet will ultimately fail. God will triumph over him, and none will be there to help, according to verse 45. In fact, in verses 44 and 45, what you see is a final battle that is frankly a little anticlimactic, as we have seen before in this book, where the forces of hell rage up in all their fury, and God just kind of swats them like an annoying fly. You see here, he is enraged, he's ready for battle, and then suddenly he's dead. It reminds me of T.S. Eliot's famous lines in his poem, The Hollow Men, which ends in a sing-song voice, This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends, not with a bang, but a whimper. So it shall be for Antichrist. His going out will not be with a glorious bang, but a defeatful whimper. And thus we see here what we have seen before in Daniel. The world's rebellion against God and his people will not ultimately succeed. And God is the one, under his sovereign hand, at the appointed time, he will bring it to an end. Through every war and rumor of war, there is, spiritual, there is a spiritual power at work which threatens the very existence of God. But there is also given to Daniel and his people the assurance of hope. This is the final verses we see at the beginning of chapter 12. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. 
But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Now, what do we take away from these things? How are we to respond? How are we to apply them? What lessons are we to learn? How should we, the people of God today, respond not only to this kind of prophetic word given to Israel, but also to us as there continues to be a spiritual struggle in the world today? I think as God's people, the the central thing that we should strive for is faithfulness to God. Because in all of these things, what we have seen is a threat to the faithfulness of God's people. They are faced with what looks like imminent destruction, and there is a temptation to turn away and to reject the one true God. So if we are to live faithfully today, how shall we do it? I think the text suggests four things. Four things. First of all, we should trust God. We should trust God. Back up in verse 32, we read, Antiochus shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. The sad truth is that Antiochus didn't need the sword to subdue all the Jews of his day. His flattery was enough to win some of them away from the one true God, convincing them not to keep covenant with him. Nevertheless, there were some who truly knew God and stood firm and took action. Why did they stand firm? Why did those who knew God take action and not succumb to the flattery of Antiochus? I think because they knew God enough to trust him. They knew him enough to trust him. Through the scriptures, they saw throughout the ages a God who was not only all-powerful and all-wise, but who was ever faithful to his word. Every promise he had ever made had come to fulfillment. And this is where the life of faithfulness begins. It begins with faith itself. It begins by trusting God. And that actually isn't a very difficult thing to do. Just this past week, I was reading an article online by a man who uh, purports to be a Christian, and he said, here are ten common things that Christians say that they should stop saying. And uh, I agree that maybe we should stop saying those things, but the reasons he gave revealed he absolutely knew nothing about the Bible or Christian theology. That's why I said supposed. I mean, I have no idea where this guy's coming from. But this comment that he made is... um, emblematic of everything that he had said before and applies directly to what we see this morning. Here's what he said in the midst of this article. The fact is that faith by definition is not reasonable. If it could be empirically verified with facts or by using the scientific method, it wouldn't be faith. It would be a theory. Now, biblically speaking, he couldn't be more wrong. In the Bible, faith is never shown to be something unreasonable. It is never shown to be something absurd. It is never shown to be something just blind that you just step out there in the midst of uh, an empty space and hope something is there. Just the opposite. Faith is always reasonable. Faith is always rational because you're putting your trust in God. You're putting your confidence in Him and His Word. What could be more reasonable than trusting a God who is holy, loving, merciful, powerful, and good, and always keeps his promises? You're not putting your faith in me. You're not putting your faith in somebody else who will stumble and fail or make promises he can't keep, or simply lie and go back on his word. You're talking about trusting God. Therefore, faith is always reasonable, and it's the beginning of a life of faithfulness to him. Secondly, trusting him allows you to stand firm. 
that allows you to stand firm. Again, in verse 32, it is the people who know their God who stand firm and take action. Even as Antiochus sought to make living out the covenant with God impossible, there were those who stood firm and resisted. In fact, according to verse 35, some resisted to the point of dying. And there are times when that needs to happen, that we need to stand firm and resist even to the point of death. It's happening all around the world today. I read how in just the last few weeks, 70 Christians were killed in Nigeria alone. But loved ones, I don't think the problem that we face today is persecution. I don't think that the major problem that we face is an oppressive government that is seeking to destroy Christianity. That, that may come. But right now, I think the problem we face is the danger of being assimilated into the culture and becoming completely indistinct from them. Well, Satan is trying the pressure and the temptation of pain to stop Christianity in other parts of the world. Here, he is using the temptation of pleasure. Of pleasure. We tend to live in dread of what others will think of us if we're different. We tend to live for what is easy and do what is perceived as normal by those around us. We are afraid to be a distinct people. The danger for us then is the potential to lose our identity as God's people as it is so slowly eroded and chipped away by the culture that we swim in. We are known as evangelicals, that is, Christians who believe and love and proclaim the evangel, that is, the gospel. But we are very quickly in danger of becoming evangelifish who do not stand firm for anything, who, who simply sway back and forth along cultural lines and allow the morality around us to set the, the relative temperature of our own pursuit and passion for holiness. What becomes in vogue out there is okay for us to believe, but what the culture rejects, we should also reject. So that the Bible does not become the final arbiter of what we do and believe and think and say, the culture does. And to us, we see the example of standing firm. Of standing firm, not for our rights, not for social power through politics. We stand firm on the gospel of Christ and the implications it has for the kind of Christ-like life we should be living as God's people. In verse 32, it's the people who stand firm that also take action. And from Daniel, we've seen one of the most powerful, important actions we can take is to pray. Is to be on our faces calling down the resources of heaven, the blessing and direction of God for his people. Remember, these final chapters are given in response to Daniel's consistent prayer life for his people Israel. And they are not coming as an answer so much as they're coming as an encouragement that he should continue in this powerful act of calling out to the living God. There are more actions that we can take. There is the pursuit of an entirely, uh, of a full-orbed, gospel-driven life that comes and invades every area of who we are. It's seen in our holiness, our love for others, and our service for God and His kingdom. Part of that action that we are to take also involves teaching others. This is the third thing, the third implication that we see from our text, that we should teach others. In verse 33, Daniel is told that the wise among God's people shall make many understand Though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When the pressure is on, even when the threat of death is imminent, when captivity looms over their heads, Daniel is told the wise among Israel will never stop teaching others the truth of God. In our New Covenant context, this is simply making disciples. 
means telling people about Jesus. It means teaching those that are part of our covenant community, encouraging them to trust God and continue on faithfully, and by telling those that are not yet a part of our community about the saving work of Jesus, who could be their Savior as well if they put their faith in Him. Our task is not mission impossible here, friends. We're not supposed to be covert operatives moving in and around this culture so that no one discerns that we're Christians. That's not it at all, though. You would think that sometimes by the way that we live. We're not supposed to be freaks, you know, uh, either, or people just think, you know, what is, what is their deal, you know? Uh, nevertheless, we are called to be what the scriptures say, heralds. Heralds. Who are the heralds? They are the ones who are the emissaries that come in preparation of the coming king, declaring, this is who is coming. This is what he expects. This is what he will do. And that is who we are to be. Well, whether it's in the halls of this church or whether it's in the neighborhoods around us, we are to be heralding the gospel of Christ, telling of Christ the King who is coming. Hope for those who believe and terrible fear for those who won't. We should be sharing it at work to bring light to darkness and sharing it in the halls of this building to bring comfort and strength to the life of those who believe. Trust God. Stand firm. Teach others this is what we should do, but how will we do it? How will we find the encouragement and the drive to do these things, even as the pressures of the world are telling us not to do them? This is the final thing that we see, and that is this. We should look forward. We should look forward. Again, chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, shall arise. There shall come a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. My pastor that I had growing up, on more than one occasion told the story of him being young and being taught to drive a tractor on, a, on his uh, family's farm. And he knew that it was important because he was, he was laying down rows that the seed would be planted and that these things become straight. They couldn't be zigzag. They couldn't be serpentine all over the place. They needed to be straight. And so while he's driving this tractor, he keeps turning around to see, are my lines straight? Are my lines straight? And invariably they weren't. They were all over the place. They were twisted and crooked, and he was frustrated. And finally, someone told him, Stop looking back. Just drive. Fix your eyes on a point in the horizon in front of you and just drive straight. And you won't ever have to worry about your lines being all over the place and messed up. Now, he told that because that's not just good for farming, there's a valuable spiritual lesson there as well. If our whole life is looking backward, worried about past sins and failures and problems, then the course of our life is going to be all over the place. We're going to be deep in the valleys and far away from God and discouragement. But if we keep looking forward, if we keep looking to the promise of salvation we have in Christ, then we will, with straight lines as it were, persevere in faithfulness to Him. It's not wrong to look to the past and remember the work of the cross, for it's there that Christ gave his life for his people. In fact, it's there that the work of the true epiphanies, the true God made manifest, the Lord Jesus Christ died for the sins of many. It was the intended climax of his, his 
his coming into this world, living a perfect life of righteousness and obedience to God's law, successfully fending off and having victory over every temptation, that he might be the perfect and final sacrifice for his people. This is the good news of the gospel that brings freedom from sin and righteousness from Christ when we look to him in faith. But our faith is not simply backward looking. It does look back and sees what Christ has done and believes, but then it looks forward to the future promise that still exists. We're not in heaven. At least I'm not. I don't know about you, but I'm not there yet. And beyond just heaven, there is a whole new creation that has been promised, where there is no such thing as sin. There is no such thing as the temptation to sin or death or corruption. Only God and his full unshielded glory that he invites us into fellowship with. That is what stands in front of us. And if we keep looking back to the past and our sins and our failures, we're going to stay there. But if we want encouragement to live faithfully for God, then we will look to the future glory that awaits us. We will fix our eyes on him, the returning king, who will bring perfect fulfillment of all God's promises, and we will have a sure and steady hope in this life, encouraging us in faithfulness to God. How will we remain faithful to him? By trusting God who keeps his word and has promised us victory over sin and death by standing firm in our convictions about Christ and his church, seeking the holiness of life without which no one will see the Lord. By teaching the truths of the gospel, building up God's people and advancing his kingdom into the darkness of a lost world. And by looking forward to the final fulfillment of all of God's promises where an everlasting glory of God will be revealed in us in our eternal fellowship with Christ. Father, we long for that day. We long for that day when our striving will be victory. Where sin will exist no more and we will simply dwell in the midst of your glory. Until then, God, we walk by faith, trusting in you, seeking to be faithful in that. Father, we need your grace. We need your help, Father, that we might do that. Remind us of the gospel of Christ. That we might not only see our past forgiven and our future secured, but our present needs provided for. We ask all these things for Christ's sake. Amen.